Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. I'm here in Natchez, Mississippi at the Natchez Literary and Cinema Celebration with Ashley Stokes, Professor of Communication Studies and Director of the Center for the Study of the New South at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and Wendy Atkins Sayer, Professor of Rhetoric and Department Chair of Communication and Film at the University of Memphis. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Looking forward to having this conversation. So one of the things that I love about what you're doing is that you're really looking at food as a form of communication, which I think is really, really fabulous. And um, it reminds me of Umberto Eco and all of the things that he talked about in terms of food as a, as a, a symbol and yes. all of that. So how did you decide that you wanted to try to figure out some of these things about food and identity? Well, what, so we study the symbols that shape who we are, how we see ourselves, and how we see others. And we knew that food was a huge part of the Southern story. And so it, it was hard coming from the field of communication studies and rhetoric. We didn't honestly know how to approach it, but as Southerners, growing up with knowing the importance of food, we knew there was something there. And so we worked to alter, expand the definition of rhetoric, and it, it easily came to us as we started traveling through the South and we heard the conversations that were happening over food, but the, also the conversations that were happening with food, with the things that we chose to serve or people chose to serve us, they spoke with that. And I would say too, in our field, it's common to really analyze words on a page. You know, we look at messages and text. And so for this project, we really had to not only broaden our, our definition of what you know identity was and rhetoric was in the South, but how we were gonna study that. So we would analyze menus and listen to the music that was playing in a restaurant and look at the colors of the walls and the paint and how all of those things communicated what type of restaurant we were in, where we were in the South, you know, the way the, uh, the environment around the restaurant, is it hot, is it humid? So we were really trying to take a very experiential, kind of immersive approach to analyzing the symbols that Wendy talks about. So did you decide to limit yourself to restaurants and say, this is the way the South presents itself because that's really a little different than saying going into people's homes yes. and seeing that kind of communication. That, I'm so glad that you asked that because that's a process that we really moved through in this research. When we started, I think that we were too tied to what food writers said, oh, you have to go. If you're in Charleston or Savannah, you have to go here. And what we found out, restaurants have messages to send about food. But our research very quickly moved to farmer's markets and food stands and churches and gas stations, potlucks. And so very quickly, you know, this was a new project for us, we figured out we had to definitely kind of go to all of the corners where we could find messages about food in the South. Yeah, I can imagine that a restaurant has other things to message besides being seller, like eat here so I can make money and things like that. (laughs) And pay attention to me whole country so that I get written up in a magazine or whatever. Well, and we even did things like go to Cracker Barrel and Popeye's and, you know, in fact, I went to Popeye's in the middle of Louisiana when I couldn't find any place else to eat 
and discovered that that was a community meeting point. And there were Southern symbols on the wall. Yes, they were packaged and sent out to every Popeyes, I'm sure, in America. But the, the people were still gathering and eating and, and sharing stories. And so the food brings them together. Well, we have an exhibit about Popeyes in our museum simply because Popeyes started in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's really important to, to the story of Popeyes is that Al Copeland, who was the founder, was so interested in making sure that when you scaled up production, that it still tasted like New Orleans that he hired some of the most famous food scientists in the country to work on the project so that it actually tasted right. And I I think that that's a credit to him because I've always thought of him as an ambassador of the food of New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Because when you go to Seattle or, um, you know, Maine or anything and you eat at a Popeye's, it tastes right. And you can't say that about all things, you know. Like, I, I wouldn't say that Taco Bell tastes like Mexico yeah, or right. anything, you know. <laughs> That's a good point. So it, it, it's interesting that it was so important that he put a lot of money into having red beans taste right. Yeah. And, you know, that's a really inexpensive ingredient. Mm-hmm. And yet the money that went into the research is really interesting. I feel more justified. I think that's a great example, too, of how food really does communicate pride of place. Yes. Where you are in the world, and it sounds like it was very important to communicate this is New Orleans food, and this is what we eat and how we eat it in in the work that he did. And it also, to me, contrasts the difference between, say, Paul Prudhomme, and as we're talking about New Orleans in particular, because Paul Prudhomme, or Louisiana, Paul Prudhomme was a Cajun man, and he was very famous for a while. I mean, all the rage of blackened redfish and all of the books that he wrote about Cajun cooking and his own made-up dishes and all of that sort of thing. People would buy the cookbook, and they would perhaps believe that they had captured or tasted Cajun food. Yeah. But all they were doing was replicating with the ingredients that they had available to them what it said in the recipe, perhaps without ever having tasted the food made by a native. Whereas when you ate Popeyes, you were tasting the food. Mm -hmm. So the food was brought to you as opposed to finding it in a book and then you make it in your kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that that was an interesting distinction I understand the desire to explore something through the book. So you want to learn about Thai food, and there are no Thai restaurants where you live. So you buy a Thai cookbook, and you start to make the food. Mm -hmm. But you don't have any real experience to to test your your product. Whereas if you've eaten in a Thai restaurant or if you've been in Thailand or whatever, you are going to have a a closer experience and say, oh, this tastes right or wrong or whatever. But by eating at Popeye's, the food was brought to you, so you got to taste Louisiana. Well, so it's interesting because one of the things that we struggled with in the beginning was what is Southern food, what is authentic, what isn't authentic, 
And we quickly realized that, that that really wasn't the focus of what we were looking at. It was more about what function that food yes. serves. So mm-hmm. in the case of the cookbook, yes, it may not be authentic in the way that you make it. But there's something that happens there when a person chooses to try to reenact that recipe, tries to understand a different culture, a different area, a different region. Um, it, it becomes, a, it can become a part of how they see themselves, mm-hmm. and it's certainly a part of how they want others to see them if they're serving it. For example, yes, I've mm-hmm. traveled here. I'm, I'm going to replicate it. So it may not be authentic, but it communicates. But it communicates. Well, that's and that's true. I mean, it, and sometimes I think we get really caught up in the authentic. Yes, and authentic is changing all right. the time. So. You know, for us, too, I would say, when thinking about authenticity, you know, I think that it is, we need to um, look at all of the ways that Southern food is produced and cooked and consumed. And so, you know, we didn't want to discount things like, um, you know, recipes from churches that use cream of mushroom soup or Velveeta cheese or whatever. You know, we would say, you know, if we're talking about authenticity, uh, well, those ingredients are not authentic. But what we found out in our research is the dishes that were created spoke to you know, these people's lives and their roles in the South and who they were. So we were very intentional by the end about not policing the border. We don't want to be the authenticity police. Yes. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think that that helped us capture a lot of the stories about how food in the South works today. Well, and, and maybe 30 years ago, that would have been authentic exactly. to you. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it, it just is a moving target. You're never going exactly. yes. to find the answer to that. Yeah. I, I do think that um, it's it really is hard to be the police, and it's better to just document what is. Uh, things like Kool-Aid pickles, for yeah, example. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have ever thought of it? But people eat it, yes. and it's you know it's something to to document. Yes. Right. Yes. You know. <laughs> And, and, and they actually don't taste bad, you know? I, know. <laughs> I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't, I haven't, I have eaten a lot of pickles, but not that sort yet. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, is this the first time that you all have veered away from the written word? We both have, both of us have done uh, different projects that they're sort of related to food where we've explored visual images, for example. So, Wendy's done some work on Eudora Welty. I've done some work on how the slow food uh, movement communicates visually. But I think this is the first project, I think for both of us, where we really were trying to look at messages comprehensively in all the different places it came from. So in our field, there's a movement toward doing sort of rhetoric in place. And so this was sort of our attempt at beginning that. It's kind of the... uh, the, the next sort of methodological methodological move. Mm-hmm. So we looked at it before, but not in this way. So we have a podcast already published with Alberto uh, Capati, and he, with Massimo, Massimo, I'm losing his last name, wrote the the book about Italian cuisine in Italian, and it's been translated as Italian cuisine in English. But he was one of the founders of Slow Food and never came to the forefront because he doesn't speak English. And so, you know, we are going to be the ones that are talking to the people who speak English. So, but he's 
definitely got a lot of ideas about some of the things that you're talking about. And um, actually, I, I found him in New Orleans because he came there and he came to the U.S. to study foods that were brought from Italy by immigrants and were kind of frozen in place and became family foods that were passed down. And those foods are found still in the United States but are no longer cooked in Italy. And I think that's really interesting to... Uh, to but still forming part of people's identity. Right. Definitely, yes. So what did you find about the difference, because the South is a big place, the difference regionally within the South? Yeah. Gosh, where do we start? I mean, I, I'm from Texas, and so my experience is very different from Ashley. I would say that when we, when we first started doing our research, I think we would try to read as much as we could about where, which, you know, micro area of the South that we were going to. But I think we discovered what it meant to be part of that South as we began to talk to people. So we really let, we tried to let them tell us about their cuisine rather than us saying, oh, well, you're, you know, you're in the low country, so you must eat these things. Because some of those, you know, some of those assertions aren't necessarily the case when you ask people what they eat and why. So we oftentimes try to let um, our interviewees tell us what cuisine was. And so what did you find were some of the differences? Well, I mean, the obvious is barbecue. Uh, yes. Um, mm-hmm. Texas barbecue versus North Carolina versus... So the actual animal cooked as well as how it was seasoned or, or Yes, even, even within, you know, a lot of, uh, of our interviewees in North Carolina, when we talked about barbecue, of course, it's pork there mm-hmm. most frequently. And so we were amazed at all of the different seasoning styles. Um, as you move across the state, um, we did an, an in-depth sort of analysis of Eastern North Carolina barbecue versus Piedmont style North Carolina. Uh-huh. And then if you move to the west of the state of the mountain, it changes again. Uh-huh. And so we were really interested in how, you know, just uh, the removal of the tiniest bit of tomato would change what barbecue was to someone and how much vinegar or how spicy it should be on the eastern part of the state. I think another um, interesting conversation that we had early on was the desserts of the South Mm -hmm. because we had very different um, examples. I was more like, pound cake was one of the ones that Ashley went to immediately, Mm -hmm. and I didn't even recognize it as the traditional southern dessert. Yes, I think you could see a lot of variation within families, within communities in the South through pound cake. And what else besides pound cake? Well, mm. I was likely to go to Coca-Cola cake, mm-hmm. or red velvet Texas. cake. Red mm-hmm. velvet was more something you would come up with. Mm-hmm. Um, Caramel cake. Yes. Again, so you know south. that's a good one too because I think if you even think about how the icing is made for caramel cakes, we were talking about this yesterday. We had a caramel t- uh, cake here in town, and the icing was almost more like a glaze here in Natchez, where in some parts of the South it's almost like a thick layer of almost fudge uh, of caramel. And so I think that's another interesting distinction. I once, and this is not Southern, but I once went from Nice all the way to more Western France, and I ordered Salade Niçoise everywhere, every single place so I could follow it. And Mm -hmm. so it was 
what we would consider a salad in Nice, not a composed salad, but just tossed together with lettuce and t- the tuna and all that sort of thing, all mixed together. Okay. And then I can't remember the town where I first had it as a composed salad, but I was quite west of Nice before that happened. And then all of a sudden, everywhere you ordered it, it was composed. Interesting. That is interesting. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it was a very linear trip because it was just following the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And so it was an easy thing to right. say, okay, this is the line where it happens. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can do that in most places. You right. Know? Yeah. But it's well, interesting. One of the great things about the topic of difference is that that's a starting point for a conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's an easy one when we can't necessarily find something to connect over immediately. You take a bite of a food and say, oh, this is different than what I grew up with. And then the other person is invited to share their stories. That's one of the reasons we say that that food is so important for starting conversations. And we're not the only ones that say that, of course, but um, it's one of the reasons we were drawn to studying food. So I understand you're looking at food as some kind of symbol and, and all of that, but how, when you are looking at all of the rhetorical um, uh, devices, do you actually try to correlate different food things with those rhetorical devices, or is that no. like too literal? <laughs> Maybe somewhere in the back of our mind based on training, but it's not something that we would, I think, you wouldn't see it in the book, for example, and we wouldn't go back and sort of categorize, oh, well, this person was using, you know, strategy A or B. Um, But I think our background and our training is just looking for all of the different ways persuasion happens in conversation. So I think at this point, Mm -hmm. probably not a direct tie, yes. That would be interesting. It would this be. is a similar thing. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Maybe we should. <laughs> Next book. So some, uh, I was actually talking to Adrian Miller this morning, and he was uh, saying that he has decided that he believes that sweet tea is no longer Southern and that it is something that has become national. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of lamenting that it wasn't Southern anymore, and I said, oh, you can't do that. You can just think, oh, look, it's so important that it's influenced the whole country. Mm -hmm. And, but he he was saying that he was meeting people who had never been in the South, who have no idea that sweet tea that they buy at fast food places or other places is southern they just think it's good mm-hmm. and I, I think that's an interesting a really an interesting observation mm-hmm. that all of those things kind of creep over yes and once they do the origin is often lost yes and I think that's part of some of the work that we were trying to do with this book so for example I think fried chicken would be another great example of something that came from the south but now is considered almost American comfort food I mean it's mm-hmm. everywhere And what we wanted to do is tell the stories behind um, fried chicken. So, you know, I'd like to tell the stories of the women um, in homes who are cooking fried chicken, right? And I want to tell the stories of African-Americans who have made fried chicken in the South, and we don't always necessarily hear those stories. And so I think it's important, especially in such a globalized, you know, uh, homogenized 
landscape of food in some cases to really highlight and tell the stories behind the dishes that were maybe associated with the South and that have gone, you know, gone global. Yes. <laughs> but I guess I don't see it as a loss. Right. I, I see it as just showing the power. For sure. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> And, and people still have the debate. I mean, I've had that conversation recently. Do you like sweet tea or no? And it, it is just, it's an opening to talk about experiences in the South yeah. where you're more likely to have that choice. So we don't drink sweet tea generally in New Orleans. And when you ask for iced tea, it doesn't come sweet. And you have to ask for sweet tea and sometimes they don't have it. And we were being chided for serving iced tea at our classes because we give demonstration classes and things at the museum and people are eating something so you want to give them something to drink so we make iced tea and we weren't making it sweet because nobody drinks sweet tea in New Orleans. I have to say nobody. Obviously that's a little bit broad. So we started to put simple syrup instead of sugar because you can't put enough sugar in the tea after it's not hot anymore. Right. So we put actually simple syrup in a little cruet um, with the tea that we serve so that those people who couldn't not have it sweet got it sweet enough without having that layer of sugar at the bottom just because so many people were requesting it, but they would be from somewhere else right, coming right. to the museum. And so that was our solution mm -hmm. because um, we weren't going to start making sweet tea. Right. I, I actually went to a conference in, in Oxford, Mississippi, and they were serving sweet tea out of a huge carafe and lemonade, and that's all they had to drink. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, do you have water? Because... I would rather have water than drink something that makes your teeth hurt. And they didn't. So I had to take a glass and go into the bathroom oh, and get water. And I thought, what if you were diabetic or something? Right. Yeah, I mean, really. You know, but I think that's a really interesting point, an example about the iced tea. I think that when people come to the South, you know, there's an expectation of I'll be able to get this great biscuits or this, you know, the sweet iced tea or whatever it might be. And, and we find that really interesting, too, sort of how do the symbols and messages, you know, how do we know the South today? What are the words that communicate the South today and how have they changed and some of them stayed the same? So the portrayal is interesting the, to us. The portrayal is interesting and also not finely nuanced. Right. Um, yes. Because, of course, here we are in, uh, me talking about New Orleans again, but, you know, we don't eat biscuits and cornbread very much. Mm -hmm. And it's not that no one has heard of it, mm -hmm. but it's not part of the day-to-day -day experience to have biscuits or cornbread. Mm -hmm. And people always question why aren't there biscuits and cornbread because you are in the south right right and uh so it's it's the nuance does not make it mm -hmm. um, only these very broad stereotypes yes you know. yes crazy yeah <laughs> there's so much more to say about the topic so yes. and so what are you doing about it mm -hmm. 
In terms of a project? Yes. Mm -hmm. So we are uh, in the early phases of working on a book about Appalachian food. I grew up in Southwest Virginia, and I'm particularly interested in issues of representation and portrayal, because if Southern food is America's other sometimes in food, then Appalachia is sort of the double other. And so I'm interested in how food is trying to tackle issues of representation, issues of... um, stereotypes, issues of, you know, Appalachia has, you know, in some cases a lot of poverty. Mm -hmm. Um, It has a lot of racial issues. It has a lot of problems. And so I'm curious when you're in that type of, or in that part of the South, you know, what can food do there? Mm -hmm. And what are its limitations? So I think we really want to challenge ourselves in this next project to say, you know, and we, we do agree and continue to argue that food provides a connection, opening for dialogue but in challenged places, how does that work and how does it shift? So when Jamie Oliver went to West Virginia and tried to revamp the the food system overnight, um, you consider that part of Appalachia when he... Yes, so so, um, yes, that part of West Virginia. I I think, you know, the the difficulty with Appalachia, and we've delimited our project, you know, it's a 10,000 mile long um, mountain range, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that we are careful about in this project, or we want to be careful about, is we're going to focus on the Blue Ridge part of Appalachia, so sort of 100 square miles around Asheville, because there are commonalities in that um, area that we can speak to that we couldn't speak to if we were talking about the Appalachian part of Alabama or the coal coal mining parts of West Virginia. So again, when we're talking about people coming to New Orleans and expecting biscuits. You know, you can go to certain parts of Appalachia and your idea of cornbread, you know, may not be there or uh-huh. it's very different. So uh-huh. we're trying to kind of uh, work with those distinctions. Well, it, if, if your geographic area is too big, it right. just, it just doesn't work. work. Right. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the Jamie Oliver example is a good example of the identity issues that we were talking about because I think that he went about it all wrong and just yeah. said, you don't know how to eat, right. you know, which yes. was just an awful affront. Yes. Um, and so I'm coming into this project as an outsider growing mm-hmm. up in Texas, but we see that as an advantage yes. since Ashley knows the area so well. Um, but going back to your earlier question about where did we spend our time in restaurants or We've already started by sitting down in, in a living room with, with a couple to talk about, um, you know, what do they think of when they think of that watch and food? What, um, how does it speak? And um, farmers, farm stands, we're going to spend a lot more time in smaller areas, yes. smaller places. And I think that, uh, I'm sure we'll be in restaurants as well. I mean, Asheville's in the middle of it, but we'll have yeah. to outside of that. And I think that not only, we hope that our method and our approach has, has you know, we, we're sort of um, polishing it along the way. Um, and so I think that we are coming into this project at a, a more seasoned place than the first book. But yeah, I think that so much of the story of Appalachian food is not in a restaurant. And so we have to, to, to get out to the people. So tell us about the first book. What's the name of it? Where? Where was it published? So it's published by the University Press of Mississippi, and it's called Consuming Identity, The Role of Food in Redefining the South. 
and you can get it anywhere books are sold. That's correct, and you know Amazon is always a good place to go these days for books. <laughs> or your local bookstore. <laughs> well, I want to thank you very much you. for taking you. your time to talk to me. You have been listening to Tip of the Tongue on the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Visit us at our studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.